You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin, we're back after Gavin delayed recording this week because he was uh, throwing co- up. Couple days. Yeah. So well, actually, that wasn't even that. That wasn't even that wasn't even that day. That was just the day you slept bad. And it's then just you a, it's been a rough week, <laughs> but I'm back on track now. So what are we talking about today? Uh, so I call this episode the bug at twenty five fifty nine Downer. Okay. I think that's pretty self-explanatory of what this episode is about. There is a small insect at 2509 Downer. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> you are correct, sir. You are correct. So uh, on our timeline, we're in 1964. Um, we got this episode. I'm going to do Dominic Frenzy running for governor, I believe, next time. Might be one or two others in '64, but I'm I'm trying to pick up the pace a little bit. Right. I want to I want to like you're really sick of being in 1964. So no, listen. I mean I could I can do it, but it's like let's let's keep going here. <laughs> you know, let's see what's going on. So uh, this is the bug at 2559 Downer. So we're going to start out. We've got a business called the Commercial Sales Corporation. Uh, which is incorporated in January 1964 at 2559 North Downer, which is east side of Milwaukee, kind of by uh, the UW-Milwaukee campus. I don't know how to better describe it than is that. Is Downer still a road? Yeah, it sure is. Okay, okay. Just well, never heard. And actually, that, you would know Downer because it's near where uh, one of the uh, Goodwills is. <laughs> really? Which Goodwill? Do you know the Goodwill? I think it's on Downer. <laughs> really? Yeah. I wonder if that would be the Oakfield Goodwill, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to think of an, a Goodwill down in that area. The, the only one I know of is, like, I think it's called the Oakfield one, or Oaktown or something I like don't that. know. I'm not sure what this one's name is, but... So this commercial sales corporation's created... Um, it's kind of, I don't want to say a fake company, but it appears to be kind of a fake company. It's, uh, it's run by a man named Paul Bogosian and Paul Bogosian also runs a Oriental rug store. Mm-hmm. Very, uh, very well-known rug dealer, but he hung out with the mob guys. And so it seems like this business was created for the sole purpose of him getting financing for other businesses. Because he doesn't actually do anything with this business or at this address. He seems to just have this fake company set up attached to this address. So is this financing for legitimate businesses, or is he leveraging this to make it look like he has a real business to give financing for shady businesses? Well, it's it's a real business that he's getting financing for. So I'm not, you know, financial stuff is not something I'm super knowledgeable about how it works, but apparently it's just having his name on it looks better because he's got a good track record as a businessman. I'm not entirely clear on how this all plays, but all right. Um, got another man named Sam Dentis, who is generally at this time working at Angelo's Pizza, which is operated by Mike Albano. 
Um, both Dentis and Obano are, are kind of mob guys. Uh, Dentis is not also, also the front man for the new jukebox business run by Frank Balistrieri, which is called Continental Music. Okay. So Dentis uh, is operating out of this 2559 North Downer. So there's like these two things coming out of this building. One is a financing arm of it, and one is the business, actual business arm of it. So like I said, I don't fully understand how this works, but they're essentially the same thing. But they got two different business names operating out of the same place. One of the two doesn't do anything. Okay. So with Dentis, with the with the name attached to it, they're buying up jukeboxes uh, to kick off the place in February 1964. He buys $18,000 worth of jukeboxes. Uh, I don't know if that's a lot. It sounds like a pretty good chunk of jukeboxes to me. Um, 18000 in 1964 is probably a pretty good amount of money. Mm-hmm. Well, the FBI is very quick to catch on that this is where the jukebox business is going into and is going to be operating from. I mean, within a month, they know exactly that that's what this is going to be used for. And they are on top of it. The Milwaukee FBI gets clearance from the headquarters of the FBI in Washington, D.C., or might technically be Virginia, but whatever, you know. And uh, they get permission to put in a bug, a little tiny microphone, which has the code of 646-C. I know that we probably talked about this on other episodes with jukeboxes, but um, what is what is the illegal part of of the mafia being involved in jukeboxes? Is it just cleaning, like laundering money? Through them primarily or? yes okay primarily yes there's different things that that happen uh in chicago i don't know if this happened in milwaukee but in chicago like they would actually make fake records uh and and put them in the jukeboxes so they weren't even like buying their own records <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> yeah you know i don't know how you how you counterfeit a record like obviously you know how to burn a cd or or copy a cassette tape but i guess there's ways of doing it with records as well mm-hmm. so they would do that in chicago and and then they wouldn't have to pay the royalties and everything else on that cuz like oh, nobody knows we even have this so i don't know if milwaukee did that or not but yeah primarily it's laundering money because it's it's a strictly cash business and nobody really knows how much is going through. And there was like at this point in time, I'm su- assuming jukeboxes had no system for tracking like how much. Re- money I highly was. doubt there was anything. So it was basically you just write down whatever you want, and nobody could verify anything. Right, I would think. <laughs> right. Yeah, and and we saw like in a previous episode, they would do things like take old jukeboxes, re- refurbish them, and then sell them back out, um, kind of in a questionable way. That's not what they're doing here. This is actually like an up and up. Like they're doing this the right way. There's a couple questionable things with some of like the ownership and that type of thing. Um, But there's reasons for it. Like it's not strictly, Mm -hmm. it's not as shady as it sounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so they're buying these jukeboxes uh, and they're under Sam Dentis' name. Sam Dentis uh, 
buys his license to have a jukebox route from the Cortez Phonograph Company. Again, nothing shady about this. Just that place went under. He got their license. Because at this time, the city of Milwaukee was super strict about how many licenses they gave out. Mm-hmm. And here's like here's where the, the kicker is of why Frank Bellsbury has a guy doing it for him instead of doing it himself. He can't do it, right? Because he's a bar owner. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah okay. we talked about that on another episode. Yeah. So it's it's not like it's not even that he's trying to hide his name. It's not like, oh, we don't want to deal with Frank Bellister. Like anybody knew that's what they were doing. It's that because he owned a bar, a bar owner could not also have a jukebox route. Mm-hmm. That was just the way the city ordinances were set up. He could buy and sell jukeboxes all he wanted. That's fine. But if he was putting them in other people's businesses and making money off of them, that's not okay. So. You know, again, and then, you know, I I hate to take the side of the mob on this, but I mean, this is basically just like he's jumping through hoops to get around the, you know, licensing laws. Get around I the mean, licensing yeah, laws. Yeah, yeah. And this is, I mean, to be honest with you, these are the things that business owners deal with all the time. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not like this is not a mafia specific thing. This is just stuff that business owners have to deal with. Right. Right. And that's the thing, like, I, like, I come into this, and originally, you know, I don't know a lot about anything, and, I, and I'm reading about it, and they're always like, he's got hidden ownership in this and this and this. And sometimes it is. Sometimes, like, it is hidden ownership, and it's and it's sneaky and it's shady. This is not really hidden ownership. This is just, like, he has to do it this way. So, you know, technically it's not right because he's skirting the ordinances, but, like, He's not trying to be shady. It's mm-hmm. just what he has to do to do it. So, do you have any idea why? Like, what would stem the whole bar? You can't own a bar and a jukebox route. Like, I'm, I'm trying not to, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think. Like, 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 it seemed like jukeboxes were pretty heavily restricted back in these days, mm-hmm. and I just don't see a good reason for that. I have no idea. And I guess maybe it was just because it was a cash business and they knew that criminals could use it to do shady things that they were put so much control on it. But that doesn't make any sense why you say, well, a bark owner and a jukebox owner can't be the same person. Yeah, just, I, uh, I don't know. I'm sure there was probably a really great reason, or at least, you know, what they considered a great reason, but I don't know what it would be. Okay. And I don't know if these rules still stand. I think they could. They might not. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so that's how this business is set up. They have their grand opening on April 1st, 1964. And again, at this time, like they haven't even opened yet. And the FBI has already got this, this bug in there. So they've got them recorded uh, already by April 3rd. The bug says, <clears throat> this is going to be a long thing here. So it might, it might stop partway <laughs> through, but Frank Balistri spoke with Teamsters secretary, Joe Caminiti about their $100 contributions to various candidates for aldermen in Milwaukee, including Alan Calhoun, Val Phillips, and Charlie Quirk. Caminiti told Balistri that next time you can tell these people you've got the Teamsters backing you 100%. Money was also paid to Senator Morse and Congressman Elvin Okonski. Mayor Meyer was given $100 worth of stamps, 
and Balistrieri said he gave Meyer's opponent, Art Else, some money because he was an economics professor at UW-Milwaukee, and you just never know what he might do in the future. Else had apparently come into Gallagher's asking for donations, and Balistrieri gave him some money in cash so it would not have to be declared. Balistrieri boasted that he helped get Harold Breyer the job of police chief, which, in my opinion, has no basis in reality. <laughs> um, a lot more here. I'll stop for a second. So the three aldermen that we know he gave contributions to are Alan Calhoun, Val Phillips, and Charlie Quirk. I really know nothing about Charlie Quirk. Um, Alan Calhoun, I don't know if he was already at this time, but he goes on next to be a pretty close friend of, of Frank's. Uh, Calhoun is, is around fairly often. Val Phillips is really interesting because at this time, she's nobody. <laughs> but she goes on to be a major civil rights leader and a, and a judge. And so um, she's actually like highly celebrated in Wisconsin. So kind of neat that her name shows up here. I'm not in any way suggesting she's corrupt or anything, but just, just interesting that she shows up in this context. Caminiti also spoke of his dislike for Bobby Kennedy and believed that under President Johnson, the wiretaps would decrease. Sort of strange they bring that up. <laughs> he feared, however, that Johnson could pick Kennedy as his new running mate. Caminiti also expressed his desire to raise $34,000 in Wisconsin alone for Jimmy Hoffa's defense fund. By Caminiti's calculation, if all the states did this, they could raise $1.3 million for defense. He believed that Hoffa was being persecuted by the Justice Department and said that things were no different now than in Hitler's day. He related that he had heard that during Hoffa's trial, U.S. Marshals were getting drunk with the jury. Wow. Caminiti said that Congressman Elvin Okonski had recently made a speech favorable to Hoffa and that there was the possibility of a congressional investigation into Kennedy's infringement on civil liberties. Again, this is all over, her, overheard over this bug. Not a lot to add to that. I don't think it's very <laughs> believable the U.S. Marshals were getting drunk with the jury. <laughs> find that find that very suspicious. Bobby Kennedy did not become the running mate of Lyndon Johnson. Uh, as far as I know, there was no investigation into Kennedy, you know, attacking Hoffa. So this is a lot of, like, wishful thinking <laughs> on, uh, on Caminiti's part here. Bellistry then berated Carlo DiMaggio, saying he was foolish for letting his son Sam get mixed up in a burglary ring. Bellistry said he had warned Carlo that the other guys would turn on Sam, and sure enough, they got caught and had to be set up with attorney Dominic Frenzy to bail them out. Bellistry then claimed that Frenzy would take the case of the person that he was told to, even if someone else offered ten times as much. Regarding Carlo, Balistri said, as far as I'm concerned, I don't even know that he's living anymore. Carlo DiMaggio was also said to be selling meat to the Holiday House, which is like a supper club, at an inflated price, and one of the owners talked to Balistri about it. Balistri said that he then told the owner that the price might be inflated, but you should keep buying from DiMaggio because I don't want him to feel small and, and I'm like. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so so Carlo was like a kind of a big deal um, in like the 40s and 50s, maybe even earlier. 
But yeah, but by the 60s now, he's kind of fallen off. Uh, he's sort of seen as, as an old man, and, and Frank's not crazy. But I mean, that's a that's a running theme, is we see that once Frank became the boss in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. he clearly has favorites. And like, if you're not on his favorites list, he just kind of, he doesn't care. Right. He doesn't care about you, and it ends up upsetting a lot of the older guys. Because they're like, hey, we're old and wise. You should listen to us. <laughs> and, and he's like, nah. And, and, you know, that's like in mob world, like respect is key. Mm-hmm. And when he's not respecting the guys who, you know, know this stuff that have been around a long time, that pisses a lot of people off. It's really kind of interesting because just that little thing you went into about Fink Balistrieri kind of reminds me a lot in the sense of... Being like how you've talked about how Al Capone almost wasn't a mafia anymore by the time Al Capone took it over mm-hmm. because he changed so many things. And it does seem like there's a lot of Frank. Frank has a lot of that going on as well. Where, yeah. Where he's kind of just playing by his own rule book and really, really kind of changes the face of what the mafia was. Yes. <clears throat> so C- Completely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even going to get into the Al Capone thing. That's a whole other whatever. Yeah. But, but yeah, absolutely. That's always been my impression is that when Frank becomes a boss, he basically changes the organization from being this well-structured system to basically being about him and how it can help him. And it, it, it basically, yeah, at that point, like, it's it's not the mafia in the traditional sense at that point. It's now it's like, how do I build up loyalty to me as opposed to loyalty to the life? Would you say that from what, what you know about it? I don't think he, that's unique to him, but that's definitely, it. it's different than his predecessors. Would, would he, was he doing that just for himself or was it kind of like, like you said, if you were in his favor, he liked you, otherwise he didn't give a shit about you. So was it kind of like he was building this all up around his favorites and then just kind of like whatever to the to the rest of them? Or do you think it was just all about him? I think it was about him. It was about him. I okay. think it was about him because, yeah, it seems, it seems that, yeah, almost everybody's getting cut out. Even the people he liked are getting cut out compared to where they were. You know, and other people might get different interpretations or opinions, but that's that's how I feel about it. That he just, he's really making it a one-man show. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so this recorded conversation was later turned over to the Department of Justice as a transcript. The transcript itself apparently is 103 pages long. I have not seen the transcript, but uh, what I just read was not 103 <laughs> <Three> pages. pages. <laughs> so I don't even know what's all in there. If they just cut out all the, like... I'm talking about baseball or something, but <laughs> yeah. but uh, apparently there's a there was a lot of lot of recording going on that day. Well, and and just based on what you read there, uh-huh. that part that you read, there was a lot of just nonsense in there that probably didn't really matter to anything. No, and- it did, but it was they were topics that mattered because it's it's potential bribery. Then they're talking about Hoffa and Kennedy, which today, like, yeah, it doesn't matter. But they were they were big concern about at it at that time. Yeah, yeah, so. June 1964, an agent was running surveillance at the Continental Music Company. At 2.47 p.m., 
On June 1st, Frank Pelestri, Joseph Anaya, and two other men left the building and entered a black Cadillac convertible registered to Robert Klitschka. Strangely, Pelestri was in the driver's seat as they took off. Also parked nearby was a car registered to Pitches Specialty Distributing. I just throw that in there because I have no idea who Robert (laughs) Klitschka is. No clue. That name has never come up before. I don't think it ever comes up again. So I can't understand why he's getting into this guy's car and driving it. (laughs) Uh, Like, I almost wonder if they wrote the license plate down wrong or something. Because that's, I don't know what the connection is there. That's really odd to me. The hidden microphone caught a, what they called a chair meeting on June 18th. Balestrieri said that Joe Guerrera and Buster Balestrieri still belonged to Milwaukee, despite the fact that they had moved back to Kansas City, and that Kansas City boss Nick Savella should leave them alone until Balestrieri decided what he wanted done with them. Balestrieri said he might take a while to decide. Incidentally, he made the passing remark that Kansas City had a piece of Omaha, Nebraska, but did not elaborate on this. Uh, Side note here. The whole mafia and Omaha thing, I have always found incredibly amusing. Okay, there's, there's like a, I don't really know what the story is with the mafia and Omaha. I know that there were like two guys there, and that was it. Okay, two guys, and like the funny thing that happened here is, so so Joe Valachi was like this famous mafia traitor who just started spilling his guts and they brought him before Congress and he did like testimony and stuff. And like the Congressman from Nebraska says like, what do you know about organized crime in Omaha? And the guy's Vladi's response is where the hell is Omaha? (laughs) (laughs) Like it's always just been amusing that like whenever Omaha comes up, because everyone's like, why is there a mob there? Like what? (laughs) And and so that but so you said there was definitely people there, but it was there only was. like like two people, and they were somehow attached to Kansas City, I assume. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it would be similar to like Milwaukee and Racine, like how there'd be a couple guys in Racine from Milwaukee, um, except the difference here is like Omaha is like kind of like in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> nowhere near Kansas City. <laughs> yeah, no, nowhere near anything really. <laughs> So it's just always odd, but you know, maybe maybe people in Omaha maybe they can convince me otherwise. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> the recording goes on. After the formal meeting was over, Joe Caminiti and Frank Balistrieri had a discussion on how to make money. They said they did not want to be like New York, where everyone muscles each other because they would soon end up shooting each other. It was better to be respected than to be shot. <laughs> Bellastree said he did not prefer getting collection money from businesses because they would then hate him and not respect him. He would rather be respected and then be able to make better deals. He specifically mentioned working out deals with Sardino's, Fazio's, and Nino's Steakhouse. Caminiti and Bellastree had more authority than boss. Caminiti said that Bellastree had more authority than bosses of Rockford or Madison because he had been appointed by Chicago rather than by his own people, in Chicago would not let him fail. He further said he did not think that John Aliotto 
showed Balistri much respect, and contrasted him with Vito Sedita, who was respectful and sincere. A couple things there. One, I, I think that's an interesting idea, that Balistri has more authority because when he became boss, it was kind of like with the backing of Chicago, mm-hmm. as opposed to Rockford and Madison, who were like an internal thing. That's It's interesting. You know, I don't, I don't know if that makes any difference, but I like that idea that like Chicago's like, well, now we got to back this guy up because if, if he fails, that means we made a bad choice. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if that's accurate, but it's an interesting way of looking at it. And then, yeah. And then also he's like, I don't think that John Aliotto is showing you much respect. Well, I, I mean, that's a, we've talked about that. There's a whole, there's a whole thing of that. Like John Aliotto is, Bellstreet's father-in-law, mm-hmm. and there's a number of reasons that like they don't like each other. Mm-hmm. So, yes, he should show respect, but at the same time, like it it goes both ways. <laughs> like he's also the former boss and the guy's father-in-law. So, like I don't think that they're showing each other respect here, yeah, right? So, like, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to be surprised that John Aliotto isn't being like, oh, Frank, I love you. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, like, you, you're you not being nice to the guy. So, And, and on top of that, when we did John, uh, I think we did an episode about John Aliotto. Yeah. We talked about how p- polarly different their styles of being mob boss were. Oh, totally. Right? Like, their, their whole approach was, they were exact opposites, essentially, which never works out well, even if... You do. People that are exact opposites typically do not get along that well. So yeah, yeah. John Elliott, like he was a little more wild in his youth, but he was pretty much um, focused on his business, focused on making connections, be very quiet, and you know, and he things happened during his time. Like he wasn't like it was just not didn't exist. But he was a much more subtle in the background. Yeah, it was guy. a lot. Everything he was doing was much lower profile, basically. Yeah. So in that little segment, you talked about how uh, Frank had mentioned that he would rather not take like uh, protection money from businesses. Yes. Did I say that right? Okay. Did that actually happen? Because I know we've talked about how this is a big thing that the mafia does. Did that go away when Frank became boss? Or at least reduce, or was it, I mean, was that just kind of We'll a have to see, because he did it. I'm not sure if it decreases at this point or not. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. I, I couldn't tell you exactly when that sort of starts going away. But it, it could be around this time. I don't know. But, he, but, but it's, it's not that he hasn't done it. It's interesting, because his concept of why he doesn't want to do it is us i think sound right like yeah. like i mean it just puts a better face on him like everybody hates him if he's like making you pay him or he's gonna beat you up you know so by saying we're not gonna do that because we want to have better relationships with all the business owners seems like a pretty solid plan to me yeah so. i i agree and we'll see you know down the line because he himself is involved in restaurants nightclubs bars etc uh he likes trying to be part owner of things and like i said you know early on in the episode like there's always like the oh the hidden owner thing 
But it seems like a lot of the time he's not even trying to be the hidden owner. Like he actually wants to be like a partner in a lot of these businesses. Yeah. He's just investing in tons of businesses. Right. I mean. So it does make sense for him to actually try to get along with some of these places. If for no other reason than to have like a 10% share or something. All right. Uh, So that was in June. Months passed by. October. Joe Caminiti was overheard on the bug. Uh, a meeting was being held there, and Balistrieri said that local gamblers were getting out of line again, and one should be killed every two years or so <laughs> just to keep them on their toes. Balistrieri said, everybody knows they die, and they'll die. That's all there is to it. Wow. Okay. That's, that's it. That's it. I, I don't know if he was just having a bad day there or what, but all of a sudden it's like, we should just every so often kill a gambler off. <laughs> just keep the keep the bookies in line. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. She's having a bad day there. But uh, in March 1965, FBI headquarters sends a memo to Milwaukee telling them that their request to extend the bug at Continental Music was denied, although it had provided very good information, especially early on. It had not done so for a long time and was now costing more than it was worth. As we see, like they installed it in March and in like April through June, it's doing really good. And then it just it's pretty sporadic and after that. The headquarters suggested the Milwaukee office find a new location to move the bug or else it would be discontinued altogether. And in fact, the microphone there was discontinued on June 3rd, 1965. So now, what do you think causes the the bug to dry up, so to speak? Like, are they just, was it like a new and exciting business or something? So they were all there talking at all times, and then it just kind of just became a thing, and they all stopped going there, and it was just kind of useless at that point? Yeah, that's, that's the thing. Like, there's like one of two reasons I think this would happen. One is either somebody figures out that it's there, and they're going to... And they're going to stop doing that. I don't think that's what happened. Okay. I think you're right. I think what happened is this was like the new place. They're hanging out there, kind of overseeing the business. And then after a while, they're just not going to hang out there anymore. They're going to go back to hanging out at one of the nightclubs or whatever. And, And like many of like his startup businesses, like they put a lot of money in up front and it doesn't take off quite as well as they hoped. So like continental music will be around for a while but it never really gets huge so yeah i think i think you're spot on with that i think probably what happens is at first they're spending more time there trying to get it up and running and then after that they go back to their old habits again so do you think that continental music was set up to be a profitable business and not just I do. A, not just a system to to launder money or something like that? Well, I mean, yeah, both. But I I mean, I think it was supposed to be a moneymaker, yeah. Okay. I don't think it was just a clever idea to, you know, to launder money. Because jukeboxes were very profitable. But that that is an aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Is just that, yeah. The, <laughs> I don't know what they're using at this time. Like, if they're using dimes or what they're using. But whatever it is the jukeboxes are taking at this time, yeah, like there's no recording of it. So they go around and they collect each day and it's like whatever is yeah, what you whatever, get. You know. It's it's and depending on like the location, 
It could be a huge amount. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've you've gone to places with jukeboxes. Some people just like pack, pack them, them full. full. Yeah. yeah, totally. So who knows? And, and not to mention that. It, well, I don't know. I kind of feel like back in these days, it probably would have been really easy to you know launder some money in there. So I bet you that there was a lot of money laundering going through jukeboxes. Yeah, and so. So they probably at that point in time had had all overinflated, you know, rates that were going because you know why not slide some other stuff through there, yeah. Too. So, yeah, it's weird. Like, you know, I always like, I'm not. I don't want to defend illegal activity. Like, mm. but this is a known thing. Like, this is not a secret. Like, bars and restaurants are largely cash businesses. Anybody who's ever worked as a, as a waiter, waitress, whatever, you know this. You know that, like, if if you're if you out there are waitstaff and you're telling me that you report a hundred percent of your tips, <laughs> I will call you a liar. <laughs> and you know it. The IRS knows it. We all kind of just accept that this is how it is. That cash businesses, a lot of it just doesn't go right. And uh, I mean, the mob's doing it on a grand scale, which is what makes it a problem. Mm-hmm. But like, but like we know, like this is the thing. This is this is how it works. Mm-hmm. So if if like a guy's like servicing the jukeboxes and he pockets money, like I'm not mad at that guy because I know that's how it works. It's when it gets to be on the grand scale that it becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. So like I said, not defending it, not defending <laughs> illegal activity. But like nobody here should be surprised by this. And I and it I do think that you show a lot of references where. A lot of what they're going after them for is pretty nitpicky stuff, man. You know, like you got you got people uh, they're out there killing people, and we're sitting here talking about <laughs> about illegal jukebox companies. That seems like the like let's stop them from killing people and, and right. not worry about the illegal jukeboxes. So, well, yeah, but it it all depends, you know, what you're going after. Like, the FBI, I mean, the FBI really doesn't care about your financial situation, for the most part, because that's not what they're looking after. But the but the IRS would. Mm-hmm. And, like, the IRS, you know, it's going to sound strange to say it, the IRS doesn't care if you're killing people. <laughs> doesn't mean you should. <laughs> but but, but they, they're not going to do anything about, about it. Yeah. So, it, so, like, from the IRS's point of view... If if you're taking thousands of dollars a year and not telling them, that's what they care about. Mm. So it it depends what angle you're coming at this from. Yes, like like oh jukebox routes, like oh that's piddly stuff. Yes, it is. But, but it, it but it depends what your agency is set up to look into. Well, that and too, you know, on the on the surface, it seems like like the the jukebox route might not be a big deal, but it could be very financial crippling to the mafia, which in the end is what's going to take down the mafia faster than, you know, you go and you arrest a mafia member. Well, that doesn't matter. They're just going to fill it in with another member. Yeah. And it's, but if you cripple them financially, that's what could actually take the mafia down. So it does kind of make sense that they would go after what might seem like a minor thing, but because it's got a bigger overlapping grab on them. Yes. It'll hurt them as a, organization more than just going after one guy yeah per se and i and i and i should add this in here 
because because you wrap the killing people part. <laughs> so the where they're getting their jukeboxes from, they're buying them from Pioneer Vending. And so Pi- we've talked about Pioneer Vending we have, before. Right? We have. And I'll mention this because at this point, nobody should remember this because this was we probably did this like two years ago or something. <laughs> but Pioneer Vending was run by a man named Herman Pastor. And Herman Pastor um, ended up being murdered. And, you know, and he he and his family had a whole background of various crimes as well. But I, I bring it up just to say, like, even the jukebox business, like, you can get killed yeah, in the jukebox business. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, yes, it's it's pitily you're stealing bags of dimes. But it some people care about these bags of dimes enough that they're shooting people over it. Right, yeah. So there are other things that more violent things that can come out of this yeah and it it's just the more we do about the jukebox industry it's just like because i think i remember with the herman pasture episode Mm -hmm. like like it was illegal for a jukebox to cross state lines or something like that that. was part of it yeah yeah. which is just like why (laughs) it's a box that plays music what does there's a whole lot of strange things (laughs) Things. there's there's that i've always found it odd that the pinball machines were illegal because they were considered gambling devices (laughs) yeah there's a lot of things that make really no sense anymore but and i would be really interested to Find somebody that could really uh, that really understood like get the gambling laws and was around in the sixties to explain because I just feel like there had to have been a mass hysteria with gambling. Yeah, back in the sixties that would drive all of this crazy stuff they were doing. You know. Yeah, it'd be interesting. It'd definitely be interesting. In general, I'd love to know more about the history of of the jukebox business. Like, I know a fair amount just from you know, reading up on this stuff and researching it and trying to make the stories make sense to me. But just in general, I'd love to get more of like a background on that because they were consistently connected to shady people. Mm-hmm. And the businesses themselves, the jukebox businesses, were not shady. Like they were all legit businesses. But they were fully aware of who they were working, working with. <laughs> and I feel like there's got to be some great stories in that. But mm. which it's outside of what we do here, but sneak peek to Gavin's next no, novel. No, no. <laughs> the history of the jukebox industry. Oh, I don't want it. I got to imagine somebody has already written that book. I imagine so as well. So no, I don't. Might, that's probably just a simple Amazon search away for you. Yeah, so. I don't want anything to do with that. If I ever write another book, it's not that. (laughs) He's declared it. He is going to write another book, though. If I ever write another (laughs) book, it's not that. All right. So, but nothing really significant ever comes from this wiretap, huh? I mean, no. They they got some information, but nothing, nothing leading like no key arrests or anything to link it to. It's just kind of no. Nobody, nobody gets arrested off of this. Um, I think it's kind of fun. Some fun little things they picked up. The only thing I add to all that is, in addition to this, I I always think it's fun when there's wiretaps and bugs and stuff. You know, I think that's great. Uh, I don't know if it's great, but it's interesting information. This one actually ends up coming back to kind of bite the FBI in the butt. Okay. Because at this point in time, this is still illegal. 
Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like, so, like, when they, when FBI agents, offices, what have you, like, they say, hey, headquarters, can we put this bug in there? And headquarters says yes. So they get the clearance because their boss said it's okay. But the boss has no authority on that. Like, it's not legal. <laughs> it's not legal for the FBI to be doing this in the first place. That's amazing. So, yeah, as this will come back. Like, nobody finds this bug. But it will come out that it happened, and when it does, they end up getting in some trouble for that. Oh, well, I can't. Can we talk about what, what happens to them, or, or is that, like, in a future episode that we don't really want to? We'll come back in more detail, but the short version is that, I don't want to get too technical here, but uh, we have this thing in the Constitution called the Fourth Amendment. Okay. And the Fourth Amendment says that, you know, it protects you against uh, searches and seizures. Okay. And this falls under that category. Okay, which makes total sense, yeah. Because they're searching and seizing information without getting any clearance to do it. It's not legal. And therefore, anything that comes of that, they cannot use. So later on, when this is discovered, anybody who was ever picked up on these bugs can be like, hey, you're using this information to like get us for other crimes. You should have never had this information in the first place. And so, so they do. Do they inevitably have to end up releasing a lot of prisoners because of this? Or? I don't know if it goes quite that far, but cases do end up getting dropped and that sort of thing, and even so, like some major cases because if if this contaminated the evidence at all, they, it has to get tossed. Wow, kind of bites them. That that is quite a bite. Yeah, you know, like. Like a lot of hard work, and it's like, well, if we just hadn't put that bug, maybe we would have gotten them on that. Yeah, but like the legal, the legal term for that is like the fruit of the poisonous tree, which is a sweet term. So now, but it's like if you're if you're using this to convict somebody, it's the fruit of the poisonous tree. The fruit is great, but it's come from this poisonous tree, so therefore you cannot be using it. So now, if I'm not mistaken, today. They cannot. They they can wiretap somebody. Oh, they totally but, do. But, they totally but, do. But and they, it's but, completely legal. It's completely legal, but it's got to get signed off by a judge and stuff like that. So there's there's steps. So do you have any idea when that came into to law? Like it's not long after this. I actually want to say it's like 1968. Okay, so they were probably they're they're learning this technology now and once they realize the things they can do with it eventually the government says okay we're going to utilize this technology i think so for the most part i could be wrong i think what ends up happening is they end up getting in trouble for this sort of thing and the response to them getting in trouble for it is it just ends up getting legalized <laughs> so like the government did a bad thing let's make it legal so, so now the government can do it. it continue to do the bad thing. yeah yeah that seems like the way it would work yeah <laughs> i could be a little off on that but that's my recollection of how this plays out i don't know you know i'm i i've been so focused on uh, certain things that like i i don't remember anything beyond this point in the timeline as clearly right now but i believe that's how it goes interesting all right well do you have anything else to this story or should we wrap this episode up 
That's pretty much it. Uh, just the one final note is that Paul Bogosian, the guy who originally like sets up this other business for the purpose of financing, he ends up getting kind of harassed a little bit by like state tax people because he's like, because they're like, hey, you never reported anything to us. And he's like, yeah, because like maybe I sold $100 worth of stuff. <laughs> it wasn't a real business. And then they're like, okay, and they leave him alone. But that's like, that, that just like, they they harass him because he filed paperwork to start a business and then never reported right, right. anything. And he's like, that's because I didn't do anything. So they end up leaving him alone. But And, and I can probably, it, it, I can shed a little light on why, w- what the purpose of this business was. So if if everything works the way back then, the way it does now, I would assume that they set this business up more or less because when you set up a business, you get what's essentially a business social security number. Okay. And then that with that so that number you can get a line of credit. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that that they probably just had maxed out their line of credits with their existing business. So they just fake, set up a fake business so they could access additional lines of credit to get more money. Sure, that's, that's probably what happened in this situation. I don't know if the laws work the same way as they do now, but I would assume it was somewhere along the lines, and that's probably exactly what they did. Yeah, that's you're probably you're probably right about that because, like I said, it was it was Paul Bogosian's name that was able to get them the money, and I don't know how they determine a business's credit rating, but if it's involved with the who's incorporating the business, right? It, it's generally like today how they do it is the, you your business has a credit line mm-hmm. or a credit score. But if you've never gotten credit through your business, they start by looking at your personal credit score, okay. base it off that, and then generate you a business credit score, more or less, yeah. the way I understand Which would it. make total sense here because he's the kind of guy you'd want attached to that. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, if you don't got anything else, then we can wrap this episode up. We I will... think that's it. Like I said, pretty sure next time will be Dominic Frenzy running for governor um notes aren't quite complete on that but they should be by next time awesome all right then we will be back in a week with a regular podcast two weeks with a strike that reverse it strike that reverse it (laughs) we'll be back next week with the patreon two weeks with a regular mafia episode and like i did say we do have a patreon you can check that out patreon.com slash milwaukee mafia or just go to milwaukeemafia.com and click on one of the mini banners you will see with that and gavin where can people reach out to you they should definitely go to milwaukeemafia.com it's a fantastic beautiful website with all kinds of information the show notes go there, so if you want to see the stuff that I'm reading written down, uh, including the parts that I kind of skim over, that's there. Uh, or if you want to just email me directly, it's milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. I've got some uh, some nice emails la- lately. I got a, got a really nice fan letter that I shared with Eric. Yeah. Uh, um, so those are always nice when I get people saying that they like the show instead of people saying that they hope we die or something (laughs) so um so if you if you want to send nice things uh, that's very welcome please do and if anybody's worried don't worry we only get like maybe one death threat a month it's 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 low it's low it's yeah yeah it's fine (laughs) (laughs) all right so with that we'll be back next week and thanks everybody for tuning in thanks for tuning in to the milwaukee mafia podcast Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.